Mom brain. It's real, and yet we never talk about it. Less sleep, more stress, tighter schedules, and pressures from all sides. When it comes to health, wellness, and performance, this is a critical topic for so many people. Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and today's guest is Dr. Elise DeMarco a clinical psychologist and mom of two young boys specializing in working with stressed out moms and the author of the popular book, Mom Brain, Proven Strategies to Fight the Anxiety, Guilt, and Overwhelming Emotions of Motherhood and Relax into Your New Self. On the coaching front, if you've been pondering pursuing a career as a health and wellness coach or adding the certification to your current professional toolbox, the first opportunity of 2022 is come and gone, but we do have three more on the calendar for this year that will qualify you for the MBHWC National Board Exam. The schedule and all the details at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. And please, as always, if you have any questions you'd like to talk it through, how it fits your career plans, goals, reach out to us. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com anytime. We'll set up a time to talk. Now, it's time to be a catalyst with Dr. CBT mom, Dr. Elise DeMarco, on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. All right, Dr. DeMarco, just love going through this topic with you. It's a big topic. It's something we have not covered in our first 200 episodes. I can't believe we haven't covered it. But mom brain, what is mom brain and how does it rear its head in the lives of moms? And we'll talk about others too. Yes, that's a, a big question. So I'll answer... So there's like two, there's sort of two answers to the question of what is mom brain, kind of like why I picked it as the title of the book, but also like what we know of the science of mom brain. So I'll start with the science, um, which is really interesting. Very surprisingly, the brains of uh, moms and parents in general have not been studied very much, mm. um, which is crazy if you think about yeah, yeah, the transformation yeah. that happens, right? Yeah. When any of us become parents, Um but it is, it's a sort of a, a, a more recent topic of study. And what's been shown, interestingly, is that uh, maternal brains, and by the way, paternal brains um, do change uh, as a result of parenthood. And, and maternal brains in particular go through structural and functional changes aimed at supporting caregiving. So the way I like to think about it is, you know, when we hear mom brain kind of in the press or in the popular media, like it's, it's known as a bad thing, right? Oh, you forgot where your cell phone is or you wore two different shoes to work or whatever. But actually what the science shows us is that mom brain um, is, is adaptive for us because it's these structural and functional brain changes that allow us to put our kids at top of mind. Um, Sort of like making sure that our kids are on that mental priority list at all times. Times, which is great and which is what we want, right? As mothers and all caregivers, like I said, they're finding brain changes in the brains of dads, of moms who became parents in ways other than giving birth, et cetera. It's really fascinating. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, so it's a good thing, right? It, it ensures that our kids are at top of mind. What that also means is that like some other stuff may fall off the mental priority <laughs> list, right? There's only so much so you can like, fit. Exactly. Right, right. There's only so much that can go on there. Um, so so that's kind of what we know. And there's really cool, like I encourage any of your listeners who are interested to like look up some of the recent science of mom brain. It's fascinating and the work is emerging. Um, I picked the title for the book because I just thought it, it uh, encapsulated all of the many, many changes that moms and parents undergo when they first become parents, right? We're talking about identity changes and relationship changes, mm. um, 
increases in all kinds of emotions. Um, you know, you know, anxiety becomes a big thing, especially now, you know, during COVID and such. So like, I thought it was a good, you know, encapsulation of, of all of that. Right. Right. What are some of the, you've touched on some as you were talking that through, but what are some of the things besides just, where's my phone? Oops. I wore two different. What are some of the common things that are fall into that category? You mean like the kind of things, the types of things you might see might show up, might demonstrate themselves in some of these studies they're looking at. So you mean like in terms of what is going on in the brain? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. So like um, my background is uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety disorders. And among other things, um, I used to work with obsessive compulsive disorder Mm. a fair amount. Um, And what's really interesting, and I'm going to not cite the study correctly. So I'm going to say there is a study (laughs) that I have in my mind um, that that likened actually what happens in the maternal brain to, to what happens with folks who have obsessive compulsive disorder, meaning there is this sort of like obsessive type focus on the baby. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, it was something like, you know, it sort of peaked at around one month of age when the baby's around one month of age ish. Um, for some, it lasted longer for some shorter, I believe, but basically it was sort of an interesting idea that what's happening with your brain is it, it, it is tuning in to that thing you need to be paying attention to. Right. Um, and you know, one could certainly argue in the beginning, it is the thing that is taking up all of your mental space, right? It, it is that thing in the way that, you know, sometimes what we see in OCD is, is folks will get kind of hooked into an obsession and have a lot of difficulty kind of switching cognitive set, right? Um, mm. it, it was, again, the study was, was interesting in that it sort of posited this idea that happens, you know, in, in maternal brains as well. <sighs> There's so many rabbit trails I want to chase here. Okay, so <laughs> let's just play with this one a little bit. It, it, it increases some of the OCD-like tendencies or chemical reactions about a month in. One of the things that popped in mind as you were going through that was there are so many parents that don't have a life. Like, they're living through their kids. So let's jump forward 12 years now. The kids in soccer, ice skating, dance, gymnastics, whatever. And dad, mom... They're, they're, they're living through that kid. Is that a connection to, is that an extension of that? Or is this a completely different element? I just, as you were saying that, I was thinking of that parent of the early teen sports kid that is being ridiculous. And we know we're, and and I've fallen into that to a point myself, we know we're being ridiculous, but any thoughts along those lines? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that the scientists would say, know that we're talking about a different phenomenon because the way they talk about mom brain, as I said, is, is very much in like the early stages and what happens. And, and here's the thing, like the brain is always making connections, right? Our brain is always developing. Um, what I would say is that I, to to me, and this is kind of more where my work comes in as, as the psychologist, not the scientist, right? right? What I would say is that when, as the kids are getting older, we're talking now about things that are socialized, right? So this notion of, oh, if your kid is in sports, like you got to get your kid to be the best of the best, right? And and we're getting these messages from social media. We're getting these messages from relatives. We're getting these messages from all different places. So to my mind, like it, it, and, and this happens, of course, even in the beginning too, where we, we see the effects of 
all of these messages we're getting about how we should be as parents, what we should prioritize for our kids, what's important, right? And the sports parents thing, I mean, goodness, I could talk about that for a really long time. Um, because, and I talk in my book, I have a whole chapter on perfectionism. Mm. And I think that really comes into play when we're looking at our kids um, who are playing sports and, and, you know, and us kind of trying to maybe live our experiences through them or whatnot. Um, so, so again, I think there's, there's so much socialization that happens as well, right. That, that contributes to the way we're approaching sports, you know, our kids socializing. I mean, many other things. Right. And for those folks that are on that fence, go back and listen to David Epstein's. He wrote a book called range and we had him as a guest a while ago and he talks about, you don't need to get them super specialized young. It doesn't help in the long run. So sleep is obviously a limited resource for parents, especially moms. Uh, in fact, you've called it momsomnia. I love that. Is, is that. is that kind of a key driver of mom brain that just how it is, or are there tips that you can put into play in spite of, we know we're not going to have this resource like we normally would or would like to. Right. Well, first of all, let me give credit where it's due. Momsomnia comes from my friend, Dr. Shelby Harris, nice. who is a sleep specialist, who is fabulous. Um, and she wrote a book called The Women's Guide uh, to Overcoming Insomnia and was kind enough to actually talk to me for, for mom brain. Um, so credit where it's due. Yes. You know, momsomnia can mean a lot of things. And I think when, you know, in fact, when, when Shelby talks about it, it's often in the context of what, what they now actually also call revenge bedtime procrastination, <laughs> which mm. is basically this idea that when you finally get your kids to bed, the last thing you want to do is go to bed, even though it's important for you to go to bed because it's the first chance you have yeah. You have any time to yourself. We have yeah. all been there, right? We start binging a show and all of a sudden it's midnight, 1231 right. in the morning. So she, so Shelby often talks about momsomnia in that context. But then of course there's the early days of momsomnia, which is just like you are not sleeping <laughs> um, and it's really hard. And I think what's great about um, Shelby is that, and again, I have like a kind of a little interview with her in the book is that, you know, she, she sort of talks about how there's some things you have to accept with this, right? Like, You've got to accept that in those early days, like you won't be sleeping super great, right? You've got to accept that like it may not be you at your best, but you also have to recognize that like even on less sleep, you can still function, you can still perform, you can still kind of do what you need to do. Um, and so just a couple of tips I'll throw out there that that I talk about in the book. One of those things um, that I think is really important is like, you know, if you are raising your kid with a partner, make sure that at nighttime you're splitting the duties. Mm. One of the things that I hear about all the time um, from moms is they'll say, yeah, you know, I, and this is from nursing moms, they'll say, oh, you know, I was the one who nursed. And so I figured, oh, I'll just be the one who always gets up with the baby because I'm the one who nurses the baby. And then somehow that persisted to the point where you've now got a kid who's five, six, seven, who won't accept the mm. partner in the middle of the night, mm. <laughs> who only wants, um, I hear about that a lot. And one of the things you can do with that, even if you have a situation where one partner is nursing is say, okay, well, anytime the wake up issue is not a nursing issue, send the other partner out. <laughs> um, or even, and this is again, a, a great tip of Shelby's even, um, you can have the partner bring the baby to the nursing mm. partner 
to nurse and then bring the baby back, change the diaper, et cetera. Um, because once again, that's a way of getting both partners involved and, and hopefully like minimizing the sleep loss in the nursing partner. Um, so that's, that, that's one kind of hot tip. Another hot tip, I mean, Shelby also does talk about like, you know, there's this whole nap while the baby's napping. And I remember when I was a, uh, my, my kids are now seven and 10, but when I had my uh, first and I heard that it would get me aggravated. Cause I'd be like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Except that I have like eight piles of laundry and like, you know, trying to catch up on work and trying to catch up on things. Um, but it, it can be really important to try to do that. Even if you're not actually sleeping, even if what you're doing is just resting when the baby is napping, like it's a really good way just to, to kind of power down a little mm. bit and recharge. So that's another one that I like. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan too. Like there, there's a book called sleeping through the night. It's my favorite kid sleep book. I love it by Jody Mandel. Um, it's from like the early two thousands, but it's, it's, everything still applies. And I think it's terrific. And I think she's someone who's great to follow too, to like think through, okay, when do I start making a sleep schedule for my kid? How mm. do I make this work? And she, she's, she speaks about it in such a compassionate, non-punitive way um, that I also always encourage patients to check out her work um, to, to hopefully get their kids to sleep on a somewhat regular schedule, like as quickly as they can. Right. Right. Okay. Good, good. Very good. Uh, the subtitle of your book is loaded and we'll have a link to the book by the way, folks, so you can track this down. Uh, highlighting the anxiety, guilt, overwhelming emotions of motherhood. Can you talk us through some of those and and how maybe they're unique to moms? Sure. Yes. So there's a lot happening. I mean, I like to think of it as just like an emotional roller coaster, right? There is so much happening emotionally. And I think I think about it in a couple of different ways. Um, the first thing is that I think there's a lot of positive emotions to be sure you're totally in love, you're, you know, it, it feels blissful at times, et cetera. But there's also a lot of negative emotions, right? There's a lot that's really hard when you become a parent. Um, it's anxiety producing to be uh, responsible for the life of a tiny human, especially yeah. these days. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of judgment that comes from people you know, from people you don't know on social media, from all corners, right? Um, I think there's a lot of grief that can come when you become a parent because you do lose some of who you were yeah. before you had a kid who has taken up a lot of your time. So there's all this negative, uh, all these negative emotions too. And I think what's difficult for a lot of moms is, is admitting these emotions, right? Is, is allowing themselves to feel these emotions without thinking, oh, this makes me a bad mom, or I'm not a natural mm. mom because I hate this right now, right. or I'm not a natural mom because I'm bored stiff with this five-month-old who does nothing, right? Like there, there's so, I mean, so much of the clinical work I do is helping moms to accept the negative emotions. So there's the positives and negatives. And then I think there's the interesting contradictory emotions um, that all parents experience. Mm. And, and mm. I say moms because that's my sure. book, but For much sure. of this applies across parents. Um, which is to say those moments when you're both, uh, like thrilled to be away from your kid and like dying to get back to your kid, right. <laughs> or moments with the COVID one for people where you're simultaneously so grateful that your kid is healthy and you can keep your kid at home while there is a surge and also ready to sell your kid to the highest bidder. <laughs> and I think like, you know, understanding that those contradictory emotions make sense is also so, so important. Um, 
So, so, you know, again, it's a lot of emotions. It's seemingly contradictory emotions. And again, I think the task and one of the main uh, themes of my book is to help parents to recognize everything you're feeling is okay. Everything you're feeling makes sense. It doesn't make you a bad mother. It might be very confusing, um, but it's normal and it makes sense. And and you've got to use your negative emotions, not as, um, as something you'll then, you know, self-flagellate on. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm bored. I yeah. can't believe yeah, yeah. I'm angry with the baby, right? But instead use it to say, okay, I'm, I'm struggling. Let me see this as a cue for me to get some help, for me to reach out, for me to do what I need to do because this is hard. Um, so that's, that's a, a, a short description of the many, many things that happen to us emotionally, all of us, moms and, and, and dads and other parents alike when we become parents. So the reflection piece is huge. Um, and yet we have three kids, they're adults now, so it's been a while. So I'm searching the memory banks here, but I don't remember spending a lot of time reflecting. It was kind of getting through the day, survival. Uh, my wife's amazing. She carried a lot of that weight. But how do you, how does a parent, mother or father, partner, create that space to do the reflecting or, or any tips along those lines? Because that seemed to be central to what you're talking about there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of mindfulness work, um, which we use. So my specialty is cognitive behavioral therapy. We, we use a ton of mindfulness in CBT and in DBT and ACT, which are related evidence-based treatments that I also practice. Um, and I'm a big fan of basically parents just like saving a teeny bit of time each day to just do like some emotional check-ins with themselves. I mean, it sounds so funny, but like what I've had a lot of parents do is, is either set a timer for themselves or like set an alarm to go off where like maybe two, three times a day, they just stop what they're doing for a second and say, what am I feeling right now? Mm, um, mm. And I also encourage them to, to practice regular mindfulness so that they get good at doing this. Um, but basically it's like you have an emotional alarm that goes off and you say to yourself, all right, let me kind of scan myself for a sec. Like, how am I doing? Um, and it sounds so funny, but it can really, really, really stave off a lot of what I call the like nighttime parental meltdowns, which happen a lot when the kids are really little, right? Which is that you, as you, as you describe, which is so true, you, you kind of barrel through your day and you're just trying to survive and you're not thinking more than a minute ahead and the stresses pile up and pile up. And by the time you get to the end of the day, you have that like adult size meltdown, right? <laughs> <laughs> like blowing. And I think if you can check in with yourself periodically during the day, and if you notice you're struggling, try to take steps to help yourself, you'll be in such a better place. And I mean, you're not going to avoid those meltdowns sure, sure. entirely, but you'll, you'll have fewer of them. Um, and like I said, too, I I'm really into mindfulness and I encourage moms to practice it and all parents, um, on a regular basis. You know, if you get one of those apps, mindfulness apps, like calm or headspace, like they've got exercises that are like three minutes long. Mm. So I'll say, Hey, just can, once a day, can you do like a three minute mindfulness exercise? Yeah. Like at the beginning, if that's all you can do, great, do that. Um, because you sort of train your brain to learn to be mindful. And then it becomes easier doing it during those times when you're doing the emotional check-in with yourself, it becomes easier to do so, uh, when you're someone who's kind of good at the mindfulness thing. Well, I love the lack of you're not, you're not asking me to make a big commitment. You're saying set an alarm three times a day, check in, maybe it's 30 seconds, maybe it's a minute, maybe it's 10 seconds, but at least it creates that, that shift of, okay, how am I feeling? Am I, 
and Susanna talks about the halt, you know, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I bored? But it wouldn't even have to be that complex. Just that momentary, what am I feeling right now? What does that look like? I could be holding the baby at that time. It doesn't have to be like silent room with candles going or oh, anything no. like that. It's no, just, do that. <laughs> yeah. hello, hello. Um, all right. You, 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 and you've touched on this next question, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. You've spoken in other interviews about the positive aspects of mom brain. Can you expand on some of the things you've already kind of laid out there for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that the major positive aspect, right, is that kids are, are top of mind. And that's really important when you're caring for a kid. Right. I mean, I think you you want to prioritize your your child because then you're making sure they're getting what they need. So I think that's positive. You know, I think also as you you know, it's, it's funny, I always say like mom brain is like a permanent condition, like it's not something that you have. And then all of a sudden your kid gets to a certain age and you're like, oh, man, I don't have to think about this um, kid anymore. Yeah. Um, it, your kids will always be. And I'm sure you can attest to this. Even Absolutely. Having kids, right? They're always going to be a huge part of your life and top of mind. And I think the, the challenge becomes like figuring out how to navigate that as your kids are at different ages and stages. Right. But I think it continues to be advantageous to have your kid at top of mind. But what, what the trick is as your kids are getting older and, and this is sort of where I am right now, because my kids are seven and 10. So they're kind of in the middle. The trick becomes to figure out, okay, well, you know, how do I, I you know, these kids are mostly at school. My sons do activities. I'm not with them for large swaths of the day. Like I used to, Hmm. Like, what does that mean for like where they're fitting in my mental priority yeah. list from day to day? Where's my work now fitting? Right. Where is my husband now fitting? Cause I can actually talk to him again, which is great. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which I, took a long time to get back to that. Um, you know, where's my extended family now fitting? So I think it is, it, it's advantageous to consider, to think about, or can continue rather to think about, um, what your parent brain, mom brain is looking like. Um, I'll tie this also to something that I talk a lot about in the book. I, I have uh, in the back of the book, a values worksheet. Um, and I'm very into values and, and really thinking through what you value, what's important to you. Oh, yeah. yeah. In different areas of your life. And in fact, you interviewed my friend, uh, yeah. Elle Schoenbrunn. Yes. Who's, who's very yes. into she is wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. Um, and she does a lot of talk about values as well. Um, so to tie that a little bit to like the mom brain thing, I think, to always be thinking about what you value and what's important to you can really help you to sort of make that mental priority list when your kids start to get a little older and they don't have to be your sole focus, like every second, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, and so, you know, I can, I can talk more about the value stuff uh, for sure, but I think that that ties into that as well. Okay, good, good, good. Um, okay. So just a reference for folks out there, the, her website and the blogs are drcbtmom.com. So, and you've mentioned CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy plays a significant role in what you're doing and you're writing. Our listeners are likely, they've, they've heard the term. We've had some other guests talk about it, but can you talk us through kind of separate from the mom brain? What are some of the key elements of CBT? Sure. So CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and the way that I look at it, there's sort of three key elements to it. I, I should say bef before that, that it's an evidence-based treatment. Mm -hmm. It's based on research. Um, and it's unlike other forms of therapy in that it isn't about 
um, necessarily gaining uh, insight into the origin of a problem or really unpacking your childhood. I mean, we do do that sometimes, but that's not the the primary goal. The primary goal is to give um, people strategies to manage their here and now stuff. So if I'm anxious now in this moment, yes, I can consider like why I have this anxiety and where it came from. Um, or I can think, okay, I got to get through this moment. So like, yes. what's the skill that I can use to help me? Right. So that's a good sort of general description yeah. of CBT. And then Perfect. the three, what I see is like the three sort of uh, subject areas of CBT. Uh, cognitive means how you're thinking about things. So the idea is to, to, to think about, all right, well, are there certain patterns of thinking that I tend to exhibit that maintain my anxiety, my low mood, whatever it is? Um, and can I learn strategies to challenge those patterns of thinking? So that's the cognitive piece. Um, the behavioral piece, just like it sounds like, is about changing behavior. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of all of this in my brain, especially the behavioral piece of like, am I behaving in a, in a certain way that is key, keeping things difficult for me, maintaining, again, my anxiety, my low mood, et cetera? Um, and are there ways I can change my behavior to help me out? The last piece that I touched on before is the mindfulness piece, right? Um, so really learning to be in the present moment as much as you can. Um, and I think mindfulness too, I, a lot of what I talk about in the book is drawn from uh, dialectical behavior therapy, which is uh, another evidence-based treatment. It's an offshoot of CBT. Um, and in DBT, there's a lot of discussion of uh, sort of the balance between acceptance and change, learning how to be mindful of the things that you cannot change and have to accept and also mindful of the things you can change and working towards changing those things. So a lot of what we do in CBT is talk in those terms. Like, are there things we need to accept and can we learn to be mindful and, you know, mindful of those things and compassionate towards ourselves? Um, and then are there things that we can change? And again, that's where the behavioral piece comes in um, and the cognitive piece too. Um, what are strategies we can use to create change? Um, so those are kind of the, the, basic kind of building blocks of CBT. Well, I like the way you broke that down because it, it, even if no, no one's or somebody hasn't heard that specific term or whatever, the way you broke it down, it's like, Oh yeah. So cognitive, my behavior and the mindful piece, I, it, that's a nice flow. So very nice. Now in terms of why CBT plays such a valuable role for moms, help us dig into that a little bit. Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll start by telling you sort of how I got into this, which will answer that question. Um, when I opened my practice in New Jersey, I was pregnant um, or about to be pregnant with my first son. And um, so I think by virtue of like my particular age and stage in life, a lot of women at my age and stage in life were coming to me uh, for therapy. And some of them did have PMATs, which are perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Um, many of them, however, did not. And they were kind of going through ups and downs and sideways of, of becoming a new mother and experiencing all the things you and I have talked about, right? The relationship changes, identity changes, emotional changes, et cetera. Um, and what I found was, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I was trained to do CBT for anxiety disorders and related conditions. And I found that, yeah, you know, these uh, skills that were developed for, you know, OCD, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, among other things, can really be adapted very nicely to meet the needs of moms who in the moment are really stressed out and are really suffering. Um, and I found that it was a really good fit because, yeah. you know, parents uh, of new children don't have a ton of time to delve into a lengthy course of psychotherapy. Yeah, um, but they can learn 
specific skills to help them in the here and now manage whatever the case may, you know, whatever it is, um, their kid not sleeping, um, their neighbor judging them, you know, any and all of those things. And so I really tried also to design the book to be in, in kind of really small chunks so that parents can dig in and dig out, like depending on what they need at a given time and just kind of go to one section and learn a skill or two to help them with whatever they're struggling with currently. Um, so again, I, I felt like it was a really good match and I was kind of using the skills on myself too, because once again, I was in the same boat as, as the, the, um, moms that I was treating and found like, wow, yes, like cognitive restructuring works great for, you know, moms as, as great as it works for, you know, other stuff. And so, so I really felt like it was a good fit and I started doing some writing about it. And that was what ultimately led to the book. How did you, it's so difficult for anyone, a counselor, a coach, psychologist, research, even they call research me search in many ways. Um, How did you avoid making this too autobiographical as you put the book together, having just gone through that phase and and frankly, continuing through that phase in your life? I'm just curious. It it seems like it would have come so natural. It would have been the battle you would have had to fight the entire time you were writing because you are in the, or you at least very recently were in the midst of that. Yeah. I I was very um, deliberate in including my own stories in there. (laughs) So that's how I navigated it. Okay. Um, But what's interesting is that I, uh, when I was writing the book, my, when I started writing the book and it was a longer journey because COVID as Mm -hmm. for so many authors, Mm -hmm. COVID disrupted it. I had to go back after COVID and make revisions. Um, But when I first started, my kids were like five and eight. Um, So I was out of the trenches, um, you know, enough so that I felt like um, I had some perspective Mm. on the stuff that I'd gone through. And so it was really interesting because I very deliberately did include some of my own stories um, because that's just the way that I write about psychology. Like I, I really prioritize trying to connect with readers. And this is true of patients who I see as well. Um, I'm not one of those uh, psychologists who says nothing about myself and I'm a total blank slate. I don't work that way. Um, so it was very important for me to share some of my own stuff to connect with my readers. Um, but I was so lucky in that I had a little distance um, and with that distance came a lot more wisdom than I had when I was actually going through it. So it was fun. Cause I'd be like, you know, my stories are like, here's where I screwed up. Right, um, and right, now right. I can tell you what I would have done differently. <laughs> um, and that was kind of my experience of writing it where I just, you know, again, I, I, I was able to, to look back. And so um, I could share a lot of the stories that at the time were not funny that now to me are funny and that I was able to explain in a funny way, um, you know, with, with the benefit, of course, of hindsight and, and having done so much more work with moms since I was at that stage. Great. Great. Holidays. You offered some great tips to uh, people that follow you on Twitter, caught these. Um, holidays now in the rearview mirror. What are some of those tips that might apply as we go into the summertime year, months? Yeah, I am a huge fan and and I I would imagine you do you are too with all of your athletic pursuits. I'm a huge fan of scheduling and prioritizing to make sure that things happen. Absolutely. <laughs> um and I I uh, there's in many this relates to summers in many ways. So the first thing I'll say is is you know when I talk about any kind of vacation, holiday, summer break, etc., I think one really good thing to do It's just, you know, if if you've got a whole bunch of unstructured days, try to make a plan for each day. And it doesn't have to be an extensive plan. 
it could be, you know, if we're talking about summer, it could be like, you know, wake up, walk around the neighborhood, have snack, you know, have, you know, play a little in the backyard, sleep, wake up from nap, go to town pool. Like we're talking about something like that. It doesn't have to be extensive. Um, but the idea is to, to really wake up each day, having a sense of what you're going to do because it really relieves anxiety for parents, particularly when your kids are really young. Like Mm. one of the things truthfully that I found scariest as a new mom was completely unplanned, unstructured days with a very small child. I'd be like, Oh my God, it is 4 30 in the morning. And my son just got up. What am I going to do with myself until seven at night when my son goes to bed? So I'm a big fan of doing that. And particularly for summer times, vacation times where there's not built in structure, Mm. right? So just to think through the night before, if you have older kids too, it's actually great to let them know what the plan is for the day. And if they can, if they're old enough and into it, like involve them in the planning for the day, because same as for you, it reduces anxiety for them to know what the day is going to look like, to know what they're going to expect. So that's one kind of summer tip. Um, Another thing I'll say too about scheduling, and I have a whole chapter in the book on this, is I think it's really important to schedule taking care of yourself Mm. in every day. And I don't love the term self-care because I think it's gotten associated with like manicures and pedicures and stuff like that. And that might be self-care for some people, but it's not for a lot of people. Um, What I mean is just making sure that in each day you have something that you're looking forward to, that you're doing just for yourself. Um, and the importance of doing this when you have kids is that like, in order for taking care of yourself to happen, you really do have to plan it ahead of time. Unfortunately, you know, it's not like when, before you have kids and you're like, Oh, I feel like going for a run. I'll go for a run. I feel like binging the show for three hours. I'm going to do it. When you have kids, you really can't do that. You've got to plan ahead of time and then make sure you do what you need to do to set the stage, to make sure you're getting that, you know self-care for lack of a better word time in you know so that would be for example like oh i really want to go for a run tomorrow i'm just going to put my partner on notice that they're going to watch the kid from 10 to 11 so i can run or you know if you have older kids um i'm going to let my kid know that like during their there's going to be a, a quiet hour in the middle of saturday afternoon where like mom's going to go do like her peloton app <laughs> you know right. like it, basically what you want to do is is put things into place so that you can get that time to take care of yourself, even if it's brief, even if it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So that's another way in which I think scheduling is important. And and again, in a case like a summer or a vacation where you have no childcare help sometimes, right? I mean, some people do, but some people have no childcare help during vacations or summers. You really have to prioritize Mm. getting a break for yourself during those times, because otherwise it is an onslaught. Um, And listen, that's been true of COVID also. Like I've spent past two years of the pandemic, like talking with patients about, oh my God, you're home with your kids again. All right. Like, what are we going to do to to give you a mental break? Because you you need it so desperately. I I love that because it's almost counterintuitive. You almost are like, well, you know, we've got a break. We we just got an easy day to day. And you're saying, yeah, but if we take these steps to create that schedule, then the important stuff's going to happen. So uh, great reminder. Uh, comparison to others, big issue for all of us. You've discussed how it can play an especially negative role for moms. Can you provide some advice on the comparison front for us here? Sure. And I think this is, you know, to my mind, like everybody does this. It's not just moms. Absolutely. Um, I do think the pandemic made it worse because everybody was on social media. Mm-hmm. And because listen, that was our lifeline, right? We couldn't yep. actually see real That's people. The break room. Um, so we were on social media and I think 
comparison is, you know, a huge issue there. Um, so I, there's a whole chapter in it, uh, about it rather in the book. Um, but I'll share kind of my like general, the general feedback I give about this stuff, which is basically like, you've really got to learn to become critical of your own comparison making, which is to say, when you notice yourself comparing, kind of doing some cognitive work to talk yourself through the comparison and, and to really figure out if the comparison is fair and makes sense. Um, so what I mean by that, I, I always give this example, but like um, I will often talk to moms who will say, oh yeah, you know, I, um, I think that my, you know, neighbor is so amazing. Like you should see her at daycare drop-off. She's got everything together. And like, she, she you know, kids are, are, are happy and my kid's screaming and I've got like two different shoes on and everything's oh. up. Um, and, and I will, I will say, okay, well, like, can we, can we break this down? Give me more information about your neighbor. And this is true even on social media too. I will say, give me more information. So inevitably I get one of the following responses. One response is, gosh, I really don't know much about this person. This is what happens with social media all the time, right? Moms will compare themselves <laughs> to other people on social media they've never met. And so I'll say, and this is even they'll compare themselves to kids, you know, people they knew as kids in eighth grade who they've not seen since. Yeah. And I'll say, okay, time out. Like, you don't have enough information to make this comparison. You have no idea what this person's life is like. You have no idea what it took to get that happy kid at daycare drop-off, you have no idea what it took in the case of social media to get that beautiful sun-kissed photo of all the kids on the beach. Not a fair comparison. You don't know any information about this person, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, right, that the when you do learn information, you find out maybe people have a lot of help with their kids, right? Maybe they have a photographer following them around, as is the case on social media with, with momfluencers, as they call them now. Um, so that's that's one thing I'll hear. The second thing I'll hear is, is the mom will say, oh yeah, I, I can tell you some information about my neighbor, this person on social media, whatever. Um, and it comes out that the mom doesn't really like this person very much or respect this person. And so then I'll be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So you're, you're being brought down. You're, you're letting yourself feel judged by someone whose opinions you don't value, right? Or whose values you don't share. Like, that doesn't make sense. I, I always use the analogy. It's almost as if you find a medical doctor online and you look at their credentials and you kind of think that they're a quack and then you follow their medical advice anyway. <laughs> like that's sort of how I see it, right? If you think if your neighbor is, is not aligned with you in terms of how she's raising her kids, in terms of who she is as a person, in terms of what her values are, she's not an appropriate point of comparison for you, Right. Similarly, I mean, goodness gracious, but like the momfluencers and the celebrity moms and all that kind of stuff, like it's often the case where people will be like, oh, I'm, I follow so-and-so I'm fascinated by her. Like, I think she's, you know, you know, I, I have all kinds of like negative opinions about her and I'm like, okay, well then like, why are you allowing yourself to be taken in by comparisons with her? It just doesn't make sense. Right. Um, so it, it's, and then the other question that I will always ask is like, is there somebody in your life, preferably in real life, not on social media, um, whose values you share, whose opinions you value, who is a, an appropriate target for comparison, who's someone whose advice you can seek out, who's someone you trust? Can we find that person? Um, it's even better if that person has kids slightly older than your kids, right? Because they've 
recently Come been through, through everything you're going through, right? So like, um, but I, so, so I will say, okay, if you, if you can identify that person, when you start to compare yourself to an inappropriate target for comparison, like try to stop yourself, try instead to think about what that other person might do seek out that other person's opinion and advice, right? Do that very consciously. So again, it's, it's about really being very conscious of the comparing you're doing and challenging the unfair comparing. Um, because it's just, you know, as I said, like nine times out of 10, when I'm talking to moms, it's either that they don't know anything about the person to whom they're comparing themselves, or they don't much respect the person to whom they're comparing themselves. And those are just unfair comparisons to make. Well, and obviously comparison is rarely logical. So I love the way you said, we're not, we're not saying let's be logical. We're saying let's replace it with something that makes more sense. So great advice. Last question, uh, partner, you discussed relationship with your partner with the additional children. We know I, anyone who's been a parent knows that's a, that's a, that's a tough nut to crack tips to help couples through this new phase of life. So let, let's keep the focus on that first year. What, what are some things that can be done? It's not going to be smooth. It's not going to be easy. It's a stressful, low sleep time, but can you just give us a few nuggets there? Sure. So the first piece of advice that I always give about this is basically you need to make some time for FaceTime with your partner. And I don't mean FaceTime like on an iPhone. <laughs> I mean like actual FaceTime. Um, uh, John Gottman, who's a really famous couples uh, researcher, talks about having a regular state of the union, he calls it, where like you very deliberately plan to sit and talk about things. I am I think this is a great idea. And I think in particular for parents of really small kids, because mm -hmm. listen, if you don't plan a time where you're engaging with your partner on a semi-regular basis, it could be, you know, we plan Saturday nights once the baby's in, you know, our FaceTime is Saturday night from seven to eight, or you, know, you sort of figure out as, as a couple, what works best for you and what makes the most sense in those first few years. If you don't make time for that, it will not happen. Right. It, because, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time from parents that I work with is that they and their partner are like two ships passing in the night, right? right. It's just like, they're like trying to survive as you were mentioning before, right? You're sort of like white knuckling it at the yep. beginning. So that is my first major piece of advice. Just make sure, and again, back to my love of scheduling, you, you schedule a time, a regular time where you are having FaceTime and the FaceTime can be anything. It can be talking through a disagreement. It can be logistics, like talking through the schedule for the week. It can be just like venting about how hard things are, you know, or um, talking about an episode of reality TV you just watched. Like it, 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 it doesn't matter what it is necessarily. What matters is the connection. Mm. Um, because one of the things that I see a lot in parents of young kids is like resentments building up. And I think if you can have a regular uh, exchange of ideas and regularly communicate, you'll be less likely for, it'll be less likely to happen that you become resentful. On that point too, another thing that I am a big fan of um, is really sitting down and figuring out, okay, who is going to do what? So if you have any familiarity with uh, Eve Rodsky's work, like she's great. And she has this book called Fair Play um, where she actually has cards that you use with your partner to figure out who does what. I love Interesting. it. Um, and I, I, you know, whether you do that, whether you just like sit down, what I talk about in my book is basically like sit down, make a big list of everything that has to get done. Like as soon as you can, after a kid is born or before and figure out 
Yeah, totally. The only reason I say after is because I think people don't necessarily know. Yeah, what you don't get it. To, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Like they don't know what the top, right. but basically making a list and saying, all right, like who's going to do what? Like, let's be really deliberate about this. Um, because what can happen is one parent can take the reins on everything. And then, like I was saying before, like you're a couple of years in and that parent is still the one taking the reins on everything. Like that's not fair. Um, and the truth is it doesn't have to be that each parent does it 50-50. Like different households work differently. So there might be one parent who spends a lot more time at home than the other parent, right? There may be one parent who's like also caring for elderly parents of their own. So like, it isn't as if it has to be 50-50. It has to feel fair. It has to feel fair to both partners, right? So to really sit down and say, okay, and I should throw in another thing there too, which is like, you really want one each partner to take over all of the steps of something. So actually what I talk about in my book is like, Cub Scouts. Um, I was never a Girl Scout. I don't know from that. Um, both of my, my younger and my older son is now not doing it, but my younger son is still a Cub Scout. My husband had been a Cub Scout. So I was like, all right, you're going to be the Cub Scout. Person. <laughs> but that doesn't just mean you like take him to like the pack meetings. It means like you get all the stuff from the Cub Scouts. You store. own it. You own it. You figure out how to get the patches on the thing. You figure out like what he's going to do for the Cub Scout overnights. Like you do everything. Um, and that's really important that as you're going through tasks, like, as mm. you said, you got to take ownership of the full thing. Um, and you sort of have to continue that as your kids get older, right? Because that list of stuff you got to do for your kids changes as your kids get older um, and get more into stuff. And certainly once the sports come in, um, that's a whole different ball game, right? Of like what you have to do in terms of organizing and gear and getting the kids there. So I'm really big about that too. Like I said, as soon as you possibly can to start thinking through, all right, what's going to be each of our tasks and to continually revise that mm. as the tasks change, I think is so, so important um, because resentment otherwise can build and can build quickly. It covers everything um, on both, else then. Like both sides. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Where were you 27 years ago? <laughs> we, we could have used you. <laughs> I had no idea what was flying about parenting 27 years ago. <laughs> yeah, obviously I didn't either, but in any case, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. It was great having you join us. It was so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Something makes me think this will be one of our more popular episodes. Great insights, perfect timing from Dr. Marco. Thanks to you for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. We're grateful to have you choosing to spend time with us each and every week. And we really appreciate any time you pass the word on about what we're doing here to bring evidence-based health and wellness to the forefront. Next week's guest is best-selling author Brad Stolberg discussing his hot new book, The Practice of Groundedness. As always, please feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or tap into additional health, wellness, performance resources on the website at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now, it's time to be a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper, the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I'll speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast or maybe over the YouTube coaching channel.